Today is Saturday, February the 9th, and welcome back to another Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today are Corey Schenk. Hello. Harrison Keeley. Hi. And our esteemed engineer and sometime participant, Adam Daniels. Hello. Today we'll be revisiting Andrew Lobachowski's seminal work, Political Ponderology, with a focus on three areas, ideologies, macrosocial phenomena, and ponderogenic unions, and how his analysis of these subjects goes so far in explaining why we see so many societal and political events developing in just the ways that they are. So the first uh, person to come to mind in uh, reading about these phenomena, especially ideologies, um, is an individual named Jose Martin, who's otherwise known as Joseph Jose Alcoff, who is a major leader in the Antifa movement in the U.S. He's a kind of poster child or exemplar of processes that we'll be discussing today. He is also what Lobachevsky would describe as a spellbinder, and we'll be getting into what a spellbinder is as the show progresses. Uh, so here's a little bit about Alcoff. Uh, he's an organizer of something called Smash Racism DC. He's a self-avowed radical communist. He's an Antifa leader. And he basically calls for the violent overthrow of the U.S. government and has tweeted to murder the rich. Uh, this isn't a, uh, a rhetorical device. Uh, he's, he's said it so many times in, in various ways that uh, I think we can accept the fact that he means it quite literally. Uh, one of the things that he encourages his um, followers to, to do is to demonstrate with violence. Uh, he'll be the first to say, you're doing it wrong. You have to be violent about all of this. So he's a, he's a radical uh, leftist um, extraordinaire, you might say. Uh, he's made a lot of public appearances to promote communism and socialism. Um, something that he's done quite often is to go before the media. He's been a presenter in various news um, programs and has come out to, uh, in his moderate um, form, promote socialism and communism. And then he has this kind of dual uh, persona where he'll, he'll appear as a moderate, he'll do photo ops with people like Maxine Waters, um, he'll participate in uh, legal groups that are trying to uh, secure rights for individuals, uh, economic equality, what have you. Um, but then he will come out and actually work with people to commit violent acts. So a couple of months after this, uh, this kind of major expose was written about him and his dual life uh, just a couple of months ago, um, he was caught kind of egging on some Marines uh, with, with a few Antifa posters. And um, one of the Marines who had happened to be Spanish um, and kind of getting the gist of what these Antifa attackers were all about, said, hey, guys, I'm, I'm Spanish. And, uh, and basically, it didn't matter. 
um, blinded with with a kind of um, hatred for uh, anyone who looked marine or militaristic. Uh, these guys, these Antifa uh, people, egged on by uh, Alkov, attacked them. So he was uh, he was convicted, or rather charged with um, with inciting a kind of uh, racial violence, which is kind of ironic considering the guy is all about smashing racism, smashing racism, precisely. Um, and, you know, as we've said many times on the show, there's this kind of, uh, this, this horrible paradox about these people who, you know, claim to be anti-fascists. It's all in the name, right? And, uh, and are actually proponents of the very, um, the very values and, and, and means of uh, action that they claim to be against. So um, in, in the form of uh, Alcuff, you have a very pathological figure. Um, a few other facts about him. Um, he had rose to prominence in Antifa circles during the Occupy Wall Street protests in 2011 when his leadership earned him the title King Communist. Uh, he was also a co-host of the progressive podcast Radio Dispatch. Um, he's also a co-founder of the Daily Caller News Foundation. So this is a guy with, uh, with quite considerable reach among the so-called new progressive movement, the new liberals, so-called. Um, <coughs> D.C. police are treating uh, one incident as a suspected hate crime, um, he was part of a mob that spray-painted an anarchy symbol on uh, Tucker Carlson's highway. Um, he left signs on the property that, that made reference to his political affiliation. Um, so that's, that's one, one thing that he's responsible for. Uh, he's left messages for people like Ted Cruz saying, you are not safe, we will find you, we will expose you, we will take you from the peace you have taken from so many others. Alcoff typically uses his uh, Jose Martin persona for appearances in mainstream media, as I mentioned a moment ago. Under, under this alias, he's been cited as a Chicago cop watch organizer um, and an unofficial organizer for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he has written articles for Rolling Stone, The Independent. He's been on BBC radio programs, um, and he's discussed his vision of a police-free society on MSNBC. So he might have some legitimate ideas uh, in, in terms of liberal ideology uh, that, um, that would seek to make things better on the surface. Uh, by the same token, there is this ends-justify-the-means um, approach that he's taken, which is ultimately... Uh, not only of not only not of service to any kind of progressive ideology in the U.S., but um, but is ultimately it, it's harmful to everyone. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that he's a he's a spellbinder. He's got a lot of people under his sway. Uh, we've seen a lot of events, even in in recent weeks, um, that have suggested that the Antifa movement is. Uh, is continuing to be violent and employing violence uh, in in really irrational ways. Uh, there was one story um, th that just came out 
concerning uh, the yellow vests. A group of Antifa protesters attacked one of the media people, uh, independent media people covering the yellow vests, which is this, um, which is a, a, a kind of, you'd think that somebody belonging to Antifa would be sympathetic to the yellow vest movement because it's authentic, because it's speaking truth to power. And, um, and so they irrationally lashed out at someone who was sympathetic to the yellow vests. Uh, and you just have to, you just have to take a step back and, and realize that there is this kind of irrational, um, emotion and, um, and violence that's being instigated by spellbinders like Alkoff. Um, Lobachevsky would say that um, uh, ideologies don't need uh, spellbinders or pathological people, but pathological people require uh, the ideologies. So it's almost as if you have this uh, sick, maladjusted person in the form of, uh, of Jose Alkoff who has latched himself onto um, the, the leftist ideology and uh, is making it worse for all of his influence. Well, yeah, I think that when you, uh, when you think about it, the left, I think, has this kind of this opening, this gap that leaves them particularly vulnerable to the pathological type individuals because on the left side of the political spectrum, you typically have the idea, of a moral idea to protect the vulnerable, you know, and to, to right wrongs. You know, historically, that's what you see on the left side. And these pathological individuals are necessarily feel wronged by simply having to live in a world where they are expected to abide by certain moral principles that they do not share for whatever reason, whether it's they lack some you know, functioning neurons or whatever, or they are just, you know, just disturbed individuals. Um, they don't share that morality and they feel, they feel wronged. And so they, when, you know, when they look at these people writing these wrongs, they're like, well, I'm wrong too. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of this world that sees things far differently than, than I do. And so I deserve something better. I'm entitled uh, to uh, something that redresses the wrong that's been done to me. And so Lobachevsky says that this creates the, uh, the opening for this ideology um, that is usually, that's typically um, oriented towards writing uh, the wrongs of a wronged group, radical writing of the wrong, uh, and the higher values of the individuals who have joined the organization. He writes, these motivations facilitate sublimation of the feeling of being wronged and different, caused by one's own psychological failings, and appear to liberate the individual from the need to abide by uncomfortable moral principles. And so I think what you see today, why the left has gone so crazy, is because um, we've discussed it earlier on the show, on previous episodes, but the fact that the upper class, the elite classes of a nation, have a tendency to have to... Um, to quell their conscience a little bit more than the lower classes, because you know they're at the top, they are whatever the privileged. They get the sense of being privileged, and they have to kind of justify this morally speaking to you know to feel better about themselves, to feel good. And I think this liberal morality is really it has a, a big draw to people like that because 
now they can go out and rather than feeling bad about being at the top of the heap and making all this money, now they can, they can just put on this, I'm a communist or I'm a socialist, I'm a radical this or that, and they feel like they're the hero. You know, they're going to go out and make sure that there's no more racism or whatever, and they're going to right the wrongs of the poor and the oppressed. And then that opens up a big gap for individuals with obvious moral failings to come in and say, well, yeah, I'm going to do that too. You know, and then just by joining the group, they warp it just just by degrees at a time, just degree after degree, day after day, they gradually warp and manipulate the language until when you're talking about racism, you're not talking about racism anymore. And it's become weaponized. The word becomes weaponized in order to achieve a political goal that has barely little to do with the original goal, no matter how true or noble that original goal was mm -hmm. which we you could say that in the west you know the reason that we do live in a country where women can vote where women can you know can work uh, high paying jobs where there's obviously still racial problems but there has been a big push by that liberal segment of the population by people who have a liberal a more liberal morality to be more towards equality and to open up pathways for people regardless of their skin color and regardless of their sex and and but at the same time without the awareness of this other mentality that's been in there just you know in you know especially you think about in the universities just constantly churning out new theories intersectional this and you know queer gender this and that um just changing the language so that now they have the power of the oppressed they have the right of being a victim or whatever and then now they can come out and say well since you are this or that you're an oppressor then you have to do what i say and you know morality goes out the window and you see a lot of this you know crazy stuff like you said elon um you know a guy who leads smash racism starting a racial uh, you know racially bashing like ra racial violence against mm -hmm. a marine well the I think this is really interesting because, you know, I get the impression that a lot of people, when they're thinking about politics and when things go wrong and what their fears are, they have a certain pers or a certain um, like kind of stereotyped way of looking at things and way and a stereotyped way of fearing certain things coming about. Like, and we, so we've all been raised, you know, in our generation, um, you know, I, I know I was like in you know, just high school history and stuff like that, we all know about the, the Nazis and the fascists and, you know, what happened. And so we've got this vision of things that can go terribly wrong. And then when we try to figure out how that might happen, um, I think depending on what your per political persuasion is, whether you come like generally from the left or the right, you have your own um, kind of biases. Basically, I think just like anyone, any individual has a hard time seeing their own problems. You know, the people around them see their flaws much more easily than you do, for instance. Um, like you, you're often blind to your own faults and, uh, you know, flaws and the, the, the things that you just don't notice about yourself that other people do and that either annoy people or really turn them off you, like, personally. And the same thing, I think, applies to uh, political groups. So, for instance, like, the, if you look at the, conserv the, like the conservative side of the spectrum, um, and if you try to understand where they're coming from, you know, they've got this kind of, like, law and order, preserve stability, you know, status quo, don't change things too much, and, and fight off anything that threatens that system. 
So when you've got that uh, that tendency, which can mean going to war, either civil war or an external war, in order to protect what you have, um, it's it's seen from the right, from the conservative perspective, as like the the morally good thing to do and the right thing to do. And in certain perspect, in certain cases, that is right. I mean, um, I mean, all the wars that like whoever listening here, chances are your country's been in a war, and you look back on it and you think, well, we did the right thing, unless you ha- unless you happen to be Germany and thinking, you know, thinking about Nazi Germany because it's just it's verboten to uh, to take the side of the Nazis, obviously. This in this day and age, but you know, Canada, me being from Canada, or you know, any of you guys being from the states, you look back at World War II, and it was like, okay, that was the right thing to do, and everyone seems to agree on that, and you can understand why, and um, you can understand that from a conservative perspective too. But can conservatives go too far? Well, of course they can. Um, you can you can go way over the top in protecting your own security, and that can lead to generally to atrocities. And because I think that the the kind of um, the the people speaking truth to power are often liberals and people questioning the system, no matter what system they're in, then I think that the often the the fears of of things going too far tend to come from the left or from from people who like people who are anti um, you know anti-establishmentarian in some sense or another, like, you know, we see too much racism here, so we're going to fight racism. We see too much sexism here. We see too, we see too much, like, um, um, you know, militarism here, et cetera. Like, that, that, um, that current that goes against what are seen as imbalances or, um, or like, the ex- not exaggerations, but the kind of over-the-topness of whatever, whatever aspect of the status quo is those people tend to be, come from, like, a, a left perspective, I think. And so, but what we don't have is we don't have um, within the left this perspective of when the left goes too far, right? And Jordan Peterson points this up too. Points this out too. It's like, how do we tell? And it's not something that comes naturally. Like people don't think, oh, well, you know, when does anti-racism go too far, right? Because racism is a bad thing, so you can't have. I mean, you can't have too much of a good thing, can you? Well, no. So we don't really tend to think about it that way, but. Um, but when you when you actually look at history, and this is what Ponderology, what Lobachevsky does in Ponderology, he's not so much a historian, but there, are the, like everything is kind of based in history, and there's historical elements throughout, like the entire theory, is that um, when you look at at past examples, it's like you said, Cor, you you had that quote um, about the the kind of features of this ideology, which is basically like the writing of a the radical writing of a wrong, and um, and like and um, like adulation to the higher values of the members of of this group. So basically, what you actually see is that in social movements, the the ones that actually turn the most evil, or the, or maybe not all of them, but the let's say in the twentieth century, the majority have been movements that are founded on social justice, essentially from one sort or another. There have been some, definitely some right-wing movements, right, who are writing, writing a radical wrong or radically writing of a bad wrong. But you've also got, um, like, leftist movements who, who see real problems, real inequalities, what they, what, what they perceive to be and what often is a form of very harsh oppression, and they're fighting against that. And so, so the, this is why in a previous show I said it's really tragic because here are a bunch of people who are, seemingly have a good cause, and they only end up creating a nightmare. Um, this is the kind of this is the 
the kind of it, it produces cognitive dissonance. So it's it's hard for a lot of people to see this to see how something good can lead to something so bad. This is why I think ponderology is so important because um, because you automatically. I think a lot of people, especially people like like me, who are temperamentally more like leftist, more more liberal than than others, you 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 tend to want to agree with with the the underdog and the movements that are fighting against like their oppressors. It's like naturally, um, but like Thomas Sowell often points out, it's like um, just because a policy sounds good, it doesn't mean that it will work. You have to look at, it, at how things actually work. So if, let's look at the way things actually work. When you have a group that feels wronged, okay, right there you've got the victim mentality. They may, actually, they may actually be victims, but you've still got a victim mentality. And then you've got this idea of the, um, so okay, we have to write this wrong. It's like, well, you can agree with that, but how are you going to write it? Well, they want to write it radically. They want to fix things in a radical, revolutionary manner often. Well, especially in this case, uh, like ponderogenic unions are essentially revolutionary groups, and then you've got this um, this kind of self congratulatory, um, like patting on the patting each other on the back and oneself on one's own back for your own higher values. Um, that's the way Lobachevsky put it. Today we'd call it virtue signaling. It's like we have the right morals. We know the way things are. We know that we're that we're good because we're victims, and we know that you're evil because you oppress us. Therefore, we're justified in taking you down. And again, like from a certain perspective, all this kind of makes sense, right? It's it's you can you you can see yourself getting behind a movement like that, and I think everyone has. Even like conservative Amer- conservative Americans can see themselves getting behind a movement like that because that's what America was founded on—the revolution against the British, right? So there's this there's this I think almost universal tendency, and I think the tendency is rooted towards justice just inherently, but. That's not the way things work out in the real world, and this is what Lobachevsky try, is trying to point out to people: is that all of all of the good ideals that you have, and all the all the rosy ideas, and all of the even like justified complaints that people have, that's not good enough. And actually, you know, if you're not careful, that is a recipe for disaster. Because what he basically lays out is that those movements, like you said, um, like you pretty much laid out, those movements have an opening. They're, they're basically ripe for the growth of evil, what Lobachevsky calls ponderogenesis. And that's because um, this ties into something that we said two weeks ago when we were covering some other sections in this chapter about on, on, on ponderization, is that there's this, um, this tendency that people have, especially in groups like this, <clears throat> to, well, first of all, like to collectivize themselves, to see themselves as a group, to see themselves as a group in confrontation in battle with another group, um, the, uh, the victim group and the oppressor group. But when you do that, you, you wash out all of the individualities within a group. So what, what you essentially do is you start to see the people in your group as more similar to each other, and then you start, start to see the people in the external group as more similar to each other. And that's always wrong, because there's always more in common between individuals of groups than there is you know, between the groups themselves. You'll, you'll, there's, there's always more difference between in individuals in one group than there are differences between members of like competing groups. That's just the way like humanity breaks down when you look at it um, like statistically. If you have like a group of black people and a group of white people who are in conflict for some reason, if you have a group of communists versus a group of fascists for whatever reason, you're going to have um, a bunch of generally decent people, a bunch of really evil like malevolent people, and they're all going to be mixed in. So you're going to have a bunch of good people fighting a bunch of good people on the other side. You're going to have a bunch of really evil people on one side fighting a bunch of really evil people on the other side. And then you're going to have like 
you're going to have conflicts within those groups too. So you're going to have, um, you know, you're going to have conflicts within your own group. But what the what makes it, uh, what provides that opening is the fact that the the people in your group, let's say, let's say you've got a group, the people in your group can't and won't tell the difference between um, relatively healthy behavior. And I mean, let's be honest, like even just generally normal behavior can can be perceived by some to be pretty pathological. But even then, it's like you can't distinguish between even just normal behavior and what is truly pathological behavior. That's what Lobachevsky called the first criterion of ponderogenesis. When groups lose the ability to see pathology within their own midst, then that is the recipe for disaster. And that's what you see in pretty much every revolutionary movement like this. Because, you, but, well, let's just try to find some examples. Like, um, you, need, you need unity for a movement like that, right? So, so if, and if someone um, attacks a member of your group, let's say who happens to be a real son of a bitch, then you're going to want to defend him naturally because he's on your team. And you're going to defend him. And you might even, well, you probably will end up even idolizing him a bit and, and seeing him in this heroic light. Um, this romantic heroic light, because oh, you know, he's he's a real fighter. He really believes for the cause. He's he's uh, believes in the cause, fights for it. You know, he's got uh, he he's got the he's got all the stuff that makes a, a good revolutionary, right? He's one of the one of the active members of this group. So naturally, you're going to want to defend him. You might even be him yourself, him or her. Um, that, but that is, but by by providing that or. You know, by closing that off, that perception of these individuals, then that is what creates the opening. So maybe just to to backtrack just a little bit to to get some context and um, you know what Lobachevsky is talking about in these sections is first he's talking about what he calls ponderogenic unions or associations. Basically says that you know maybe depending on the size he's got different names for them. So you can have groups, unions, and then associations would be a, a big one that has like significant social influence. That's the, he re, that's what he reserves the word association for. But basically these are groups that um, are ideologically motivated and that have a higher than normal percentage of people with personality disorders. So. I want to just read the the first paragraph from this section, um, just because it's a little introduction. He says, We shall give the name ponderogenic association to any group of people characterized by ponderogenic processes of above-average social intensity, wherein the carriers of various pathological factors function as inspirers, spellbinders, and leaders, and where a proper pathological social structure generates. Smaller, less permanent associations may be called groups or unions. So he's just kind of setting out the definitions there. Um, and then, um, well, he, so then he distinguishes between two types of groups, two types of unions, primary and secondary. So again, when we think of, um, when, we, when we have nightmares, when, when, we, when we catastrophize about the future and, and how societies will go wrong, I think we tend to think of like this, mafia or gang kind of taking over. And, um, and I think that, that's true to a degree. But um, Lobachevsky would char characterize like gangs and, and uh, mafias and things like that as primary uh, ponderogenic unions. So what he means by this is that there's a group of people who, um, from the outset, have a high percentage of people with uh, personality disorders of one sort or another. So these would be like street gangs or like mafias. 
And the thing about these groups is that even the even regular people in society recognize them as criminal and kind of like disreputable. So an ordinary person um, like reading about the mob would be like, well, they might they might even like admire them to some degree, but they'll see them as criminal, and society will generally reject them like on a on a mass level. You'll never get you'll never get an actual like mafia running on the mafia ticket, like you know, running for office and then taking over the 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 government. That just won't happen. You won't get a street gang doing the same thing. You won't get a street gang that just says we're not we're a political party now and um and takes over a country. The people will just reject that naturally. And he points out that uh, like in in like youth gangs, for instance, he he gives some of his his own statistics. He talks about like some of the basically some of the brain damage that can happen after certain diseases like mumps or diphtheria or something. Um, I don't know how if how accurate that is or you know what uh, what psychologists and you know brain scientists would say about that today. But basically, what he's saying is that like there are some some youths with brain damage of some sort. It it, it basically. They they become less critical, um, you know, more prone to violence, that sort of thing. That he he basically says that the the percentage of of people like that in in gangs in Poland, you know, when he was working in the probably in the fifties and sixties, um, was like twenty to thirty times higher than than that than than they than they were represented in the general population. So like less than one percent in the general population, but something like twenty five percent in youth gangs. And what would often happen is that you'd get these young males that were in these gangs, and the way that they'd operate is that they would basically be the fall guys and willingly be the fall guys for the more um, more malevolent, more psychopathic like gang leaders, um, the people like basically um, guiding the guiding the gang, gui- guiding this little like pathological social movement of a sort. So they'd be the, the the fall guys. They'd take the rap for the for the leaders. They they wouldn't rat anyone out. They'd do the jail time. And then, uh, you know, they'd, they'd gain the admiration of the gang leaders. That's basically like a, a, poner, a primary ponergenic group or union. And he points out that, you know, there are ways of looking at groups like this and studying groups like this. Like the, the common sociological approach would be to, like, you know, take some statistics, talk about the group and what they believe in and, and their, their statements about, you know, what their goals are and what their aims and, you know, essentially policies are. And to, to basically take this kind of like surface level and statistical look at the group and kind of try to parse it out that way. But by doing that, and this would also be the way criminologists look at it, I guess, um, by, by taking this approach, though, is that you, you ignore um, what are actually the important factors. And this would be the actual the psychopathology involved. Because this is where it gets important. You know, it's not necessarily important for for looking at um, um, you know th- this type of group pom- pr- primary ponergenic unions because they're essentially just gangs, and you know, police take care of gangs at least. You know, well, that's debatable, but um, you know, it's it's known. It's basically a known quantity. People know what's going on, and there at, at the very least there is some kind of. Um, you know, official police response to it, and uh, you know, law enforcement essentially. But when we get to secondary ponderogenic unions, that's where the lines get blurred. And without this kind of approach, we we can't even realize that we're looking at a, uh, a ponderogenic union, because secondary secondary ponderogenic unions are um, basically mobs that form, mafias that form within a social movement that has a um, a palatable ideology for the masses. 
So this would be something like this would be something like a political party, a political movement that can get the support of wide swaths of the population um, because of their values, because of their their policies, and because of the reasons like the, those three things that Corey mentioned earlier. Because they are they are out to make uh, to make a wrong right, and they that they feel like um, they have been oppressed or victimized in some way, and that they have um, basically good morals. They are morally good people, and not only that, they're morally better than the alternatives. So when you have a group like this, it's like now people can get behind it. It's like, oh, well, here's a, here's a here's something that I can I can get behind. This is a movement I can lend my support to, because either I am part of this oppressed group, or I sympathize with this oppressed group, and I want to make things right and I want to make things better. So I'm going to give them my support. So now you have a social movement that has um, the actual support of a large segment of the population. It's not just a criminal gang. But what makes it um, what makes it akin to a criminal gang is that again, because of this um, tendency to collectivize and to see oneself as as just part of this like homogenized group, because you because you wash out those individual differences and the ability to see those individual differences, then you've got now you have people in your group who have ulterior motives and who aren't really interested in the ideology but are interest but are more than willing to ride on your popularity and your success and to, and to turn your movement into something that even you would be horrified by probably in a few years time once you see what direction the group is actually going in so um basically one of the points that he that he says is that um Members of of groups like especially the primary ones tend to like idealize and heroize their leaders, so this is kind of natural. Now, uh, of course, if the if the leader of a normal group is just like a you know a decent human being, like running a political party, for instance, um, you know that that's pretty normal, and and you'll have that happen. But in like a in a in a gang or a, or um, um, you know a, more of a criminal group like this, then you'll get this kind of like. Um, not necessarily caricaturization, but like a, a bizarro version of this where the the gang leader, you know, the the person who would generally be the most reprehensible person in society is is then the one that is idolized, looked up to, and emulated by um, his followers. So this process this process starts happening in like political movements and the um I think the the reason that um well, I'll get to that later. Um, but did you guys have anything to say on that so far? Before I, I just want to like, I want to finish like just summing up the section. But um, is there any? Do you have any comments on that? Well, well, the both of you briefly commented on this uh, this kind of opening, and this um, this this vulnerability that uh, that leaves people um, uh, kind of subject to the whims of pathological uh, leaders um, on the subject. Lobachevsky says, sometime during life, every human organism undergoes periods during which physiological and psychological resistance declines, facilitating development of bacteriological infection within. Similar, similarly, a human association or social movement undergoes periods of crisis, which weaken it, its ideational and moral cohesion. This may be caused by pressure on the part of other groups a general spiritual crisis in the environment, or intensification of its hysterical condition. 
just as more stringent sanitary measures are an obvious medical indication for a weakened organism, the development of conscious control over the activity of pathological factors is a ponderological indication. This is a crucial factor for prevention of tragedy during a society's periods of moral crisis. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, over the past few decades, the U.S. in particular has seen a, a prolonged period of moral crisis. Um, and there's such a, uh, a kind of wholesale um, um, thrust upon uh, people through propaganda, uh, through the media, through various um, sources of cognitive dissonance among people that, that they don't even know where to put their finger on on where the sickness is or that it, e that it even is a sickness necessarily. So there, there, is this, uh, there is this opening um, that, is, uh, that has made people rife for, um, for being radicalized uh, on either side of the, of the equation. And, um, and the problem is there is no education uh, that, uh, you know, you just want to stay away from crazy people. You want to stay away from criminals and bad people and violence. It, it, it gets that mundane. It gets that banal. Uh, th there is no instruction or um, or ed or education that that uh, that gives one to be able to identify uh, what is truly a a pathological um, or pathologized movement uh, or leader. Um, the left tried to do this with. Trump. They, they are continuing to try and, and do this. Um, when he was running for office, uh, there were all kinds of provocations that were set up by the DNC that we found out. They tried to portray him as this, as this kind of fascist thug, which, uh, yeah, we, we can argue about his, his policies, um, but essentially that, that isn't what he is or, or is striving to be. Um, when the truth is that you have people like Maxine Waters at the, at the very uh, forefront of the Democratic Party, just to give an example, who, who is going out on the street and telling people, you know, give the Republicans no rest. Go out and hit them where they live. Accost them in restaurants and public places. Um, this is what uh, guys like Al Koffer are saying. Kill the rich. Uh, and, and there are a few people who who are um, immune enough to recognize this pathology for exactly what it is. I don't I actually don't know how much... Uh, well, I tend not... I try not to be... Sometimes I tend to be generous and sometimes I try not to be. I don't know how much of it is people who are actually immune as opposed to people who are just on the other side of the political spectrum that, um, you know, can naturally see when the opposite side is being crazy because they have no, um, you know... No sympathy whatsoever towards the you know the people that they're criticizing. So naturally, people on the right are going to be able to look at crazy people on the left and say, "Oh, you guys are obviously crazy." Um, just like I think that you will find people on the left who who will see people on the right and do the same thing, but you also will get exaggerations. In this case, like people on the right pointing out in this specific example, people pointing out that like Maxine Waters saying this thing is really like irresponsible and and um, um, like dangerous and actually like not helpful whatsoever they're just right when people are criticizing trump they tend to be i think like from their perspective correct on certain things but there's this exaggeration that takes place to the point where they it's like 
um, like Scott Adams usually says, or you know, paraphrase, it's like th- th- to the point where they are debating or criticizing like a version of Trump that doesn't actually exist. So, um, but I think both sides can be can be crazy and just basically go on their. It's basically confirmation bias on so on both sides that can happen. Yeah, I think that confirmation bias is extremely important because that's one of the big factors that leads to the hystericization of society is people just relying on on their moral emotions basically to dictate what reality is. So, you know, you've got the right side of the spectrum saying that the left is morally wrong and the left saying that the right is morally wrong and then, you know, a, a clock is right, you know, two times a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. But just that reliance on morality itself, it there's probably nothing that will short-circuit your ability to think critically about what's really going on faster than that moral hive mind that will just click and say, nope, that's wrong, that's evil, so you know this, this article has to be right. I don't need to read any more about it. I don't need to look into the actual details. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly there are people who are intelligent enough, you, know, you hear them more on the right now, um, that are, you know, that they look into the real, the nuances that, that exist in, you know, every social problem, because it's so complex. You're never, your morality is not what you want to rely on in order to understand what's really going on in the world. And Lobachevsky talks about this, and we spoke about this during the last episode, but how just relying on your on your morality will only feed the hystericization of of society, you know, mm-hmm. just moralizing about things that, you know, this is wrong or that's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm moralizing about moralizing right now. <laughs> but but that in and of itself is not good enough. And at the end of the day, you end up feeling, le- you just end up feeling defeated because you haven't really described what's actually happening, mm-hmm. you know, and it's your, your tactic isn't working. It's not making things better. But, um, but yeah, Harrison, did you want to go on with uh, what you were going to wrap up that section? We yeah, can move into the next. Yeah, sure. So um, this ties into what we were talking about two weeks ago in the ponderization process and how there's basically a, almost like a series of phases that a group will go through um, you know, um, o- over time. Not really like set in stone, like definable phases of time, but just kind of a general trend that these things take, tend to take over time. And that, and the way Lobachevsky lays it out is that to start out with, when you have a um, like a secondary ponderogenic union like this, uh, you know, a political association that has been essentially hijacked um, by uh, like people with personality disorders, is that at, to start out with, um, you'll get what he calls like character paths. And I think the best way to describe that in like you know Western current tech terminology would be like people with personality disorders who have like you know high negative emotions and maybe um, um, they're like low inhibition. And um, these would be like, so these would be the spellbinders and the, the, the kind of, they might be kind of paranoid and, and like ideologues and like true believers and that kind of thing. And they, so this would be like the guy that was on, like the, the black Hebrew Israelite who was on the, you know, the street of the Lincoln Memorial and maybe like this guy, um, this Martin guy that you were talking about, Elon. Um, but then um, even while this is going on and you've got these, this, these people kind of like, um, propagating an ideology at the same time the movement still has this kind of romantic um air about it where especially like young people uh, primarily like well yeah primarily young people but also people who um well i'll get into that later so you've got primarily young people who who can get behind it because they identify with the kind of romantic ideal of the group but then as as this as this process progresses you get more actual like psychopaths that are joining the group and essentially this is where the the real hijacking takes over 
and the and that things get start get, getting steered into a direction that doesn't really have much in common with the the actual ideology you know as as crazy as the ideology might be because you know you might have a group of communists who are saying you know we need to take you know tear down the government and and have like class warfare and you know kill the rich and etc even then that is still the surface ideology there's still an ideology even worse than that under the surface once psychopaths get involved and to, to the point where even the people who want to kill the rich will be like okay that's this is too much you know this isn't what i signed up for um and you know that might be hard to wrap your mind around but just always keep in mind that as bad as things are there can always be worse and um so you just got to use your imagination if you you know whenever you see something and say oh things can't get can't get much worse than that um you're probably wrong so um th so there's this change in leadership and one of the one of the effects on the people involved is that um, so first we had this like we're talking about confirmation bias and this kind of tribalization or collectivization that happens to to like insulate yourself from the uncomfortable realities of what you're seeing what's going on in your group well he uh, Lobachevsky gives one kind of real world example an analogy that I want to read out um, um, just to, to show kind of what the, the psychological process that's going on here so he says this is this is reminiscent of a situation psychopathologists know well a person who enjoyed trust and respect in their circles starts behaving with preposterous arrogance and hurting others, allegedly in the name of his already known, decent, and accepted convictions, which have in the meantime deteriorated due to some psychological process rendering them primitive but emotionally dynamic. So basically this is, so before I go on, this is a, you know, a guy who has basically just kind of lost it. You know, he's, he's gone, kind of gone un, unhinged a little bit, and he's acting in, in ways that he hadn't previously acted, um, He's um, like emotionally reactive, probably you know disinhibited in his behaviors, and you know potentially also you know antisocial or criminal in some aspect. Basically, you know it's this guy's he's broke bad in some way. So, um, however, his old acquaintances, having known for a long ha having known him for a long time as the person he was, do not believe the injured parties who complain about his new or even hidden behavior, and are prepared to denigrate them and consider them liars. This adds insult to their injury and gives encouragement and license to the individual whose personality is undergoing deterioration to commit further hurtful acts. As a rule, such a situation lasts until, until the person's madness becomes obvious. So I think we've all seen this either in our lives or in like, you know, TV shows and movies. The, the person who, um, uh, well, probably the most extreme example is a person who's not just gone crazy, but a person who had a secret life, like a serial killer. So, or or, a, or someone who who was like a you know a, a criminal on the side, basically a con man, and who has been revealed to some to some degree. The people who are his friends and family, and his admirers, will be the first to defend him and say, "Oh, this person couldn't he couldn't possibly have done that. He was such a good man, you know. He's so normal, um, you know." I, and then so that they will actually turn on the accusers, the the actual victims of real crimes, because they just can't believe that he would have done this. Doesn't matter that it actually happened, and that that, that this guy actually was, uh, you know, was doing these things, did do those things, and you know, was the was the actual oppressor. They will defend him and see and see him as the oppressed victim. So this is what this is in like microcosm what tends to happen in these groups. Well, and that, and that, and it applies to individuals in these groups too. And you can see this often, like in church groups, for instance, like members of a congregation, where they'll they'll rally around a member of their of of their group that they feel is being wrongfully. Um, accused for something he couldn't possibly have done. Um, now, of course, that might happen. People get falsely accused of things all the time. The point is that that 
this happens in um, in defiance of the actual evidence. So even when this person is like proven to have done something, people will still rally to his defense. This is this is that problem. It's a it's a human tendency. It's a tendency we all have to defend members of our groups, to 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 see them as being you know unfairly treated by an outsider, and to therefore and therefore rally to their defense. But the problem is that often. Because, especially in groups like uh, like political parties, political associations like this, there's so many people, you don't know all of them. You're not personal friends with all of them. You're not even family members with all of them. It might just be some random person, but you're still going to, um, you're still going to rally to their defense just because they're a member of your team, your party. That's the danger. And it's a danger because in such a group, when, when there's so many people, there's, a, uh, there's even a, a greater amount of anonymity, essentially. You can get away with more in a large group of people where no one really knows you that well, and then you can form a clique within that group, and you can essentially stage a coup within that group, a silent coup that the other members don't even know has taken place, and um, and they'll they'll be the first to defend you. But the change comes. Um, well, there, there's a change that comes. But bef- before we get to that, one more quote from uh, from this section. So he's talking about the relation to ide- ideology here. So he says that the is this the right one? Okay, yeah. A spellbinder at first simultaneously plays the role of leader in a panorogenic group. Um, um, leader and um, spellbinder, essentially. Later there appears another kind of leadership talent, a more vital individual who often joined the organiza- organization later once it already succumbed to once it has already succumbed to panorization. The spellbinding individual being weaker is forced to come to terms with being shunted into the shadows and recognizing the new leader's genius, or accept the threat of total failure. Roles are parceled out. The spellbinder needs support from the primitive but decisive leader, who in turn needs the spellbinder to uphold the association's ideology, so essential in maintaining the proper attitude on the part of those members of the rank and file who betray a tendency to criticism and doubt of the moral variety. The spellbinder's job then becomes to repackage the ideology appropriately, sliding new contents in under old titles, so that it can contain ful- uh, can continue fulfilling the propaganda function under ever-changing conditions. He also has to, up to uphold the leader's mystique inside and outside the association. Complete trust cannot exist between the two, however, since the leader secretly has contempt for the spellbinder and his ideology, whereas the spellbinder despises the leader for being such a coarse individual. A showdown is always probable. Whoever is weaker becomes the loser. So that's one of the dangers. Um, you know, a danger facing political groups is there is this internal um, like jockeying for power and that, that all takes place behind the scenes that the rank and file aren't aware of <clears throat> and that, um, you know, well, that the general public isn't aware of. All you see on the surface is, you know, this ideological group that continues to be an ideological group, and maybe maybe you see oh well, there, well there's just something about it that's kind of changed that you can't uh, you can't really note. Well, it's not immediately apparent what has changed. Um, for a, for a lot of people, nothing has changed. Um, what really what really starts to change is when the group starts kind of going after its own and kind of closing ranks and um, 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 how how would you put it like increasing or decreasing the percentage of like decent normal people um, who actually believe in the ideology for for however close to good reasons that they that they have, and this is when this is when a group 
that you know originally might have been f fighting for social justice mm -hmm. just you, then that just uses that as a cover for gaining power um, because this is one of the things upon that uh, Lobachevsky talks about these kinds of groups is that the reason that um, that psychopaths and people with personality disorders join them is because they want political power they want to put in legislation um, or or you know a new constitution or whatever in that with laws that will benefit themselves um, and this might even and well one of the examples he gives is just for like disproportionate prosperity basically greed they want the power they want the resources they want the money and they will um, do what they have to do to get it including riding on this ideology so even for the crazy crazy ideologues who normal people can you know look at them and say oh well, you know that they're just kind of that, that's kind of, that's kind of too much it's like you know I, I can't get behind that ideology even then there are people that are using that ideology for even worse like ulterior motives that uh, and that they 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 don't feel um, obliged you know whatsoever to that ideology to those goals so you've got this guy who you know wants to kill the rich let's say that he's that he's um, um, honest or uh, what's the word like genuine or authentic in his beliefs and his ideals mm -hmm. um, he's going to be in for a hard ride you know if if he were ever to 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 become more influential and have more power than he is because you're going to get people within the group who don't care whatsoever about killing the rich they're just fine to 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 go along with killing the rich until they have to kill the guy that wants to kill the rich so that they can get to the top and just be in political power this is this is why i think jordan peterson is correct when he criticizes um like socialists and basically communists um, all the communists who say, you know, that the Soviet Union wasn't real communism, it's like, oh, well, you know, that wasn't real communism. And so Peterson's right when he says, well, all these people are are saying is that, oh, well, you know, I would have I would have done it better. I would have been the, a good communist leader. What they don't take into account is that if you really were a good communist leader, you would have been assassinated. You would have been knocked off. You would have been you would have lost your position to the most ruthless guy in the in the bunch because you would have been a threat to the person who's just using um, you know, the communist ideology as a vehicle, as a Trojan horse, in order to get into power. And once they're there, they don't care anything about the ideology. They don't care anything about the working class. They don't care anything about you mm -hmm. and all you people who actually believe in communism. It's like you're actually a, a bigger danger than other people. It's like because you're the ones that, uh, that, that are close by and that could potentially um, you know, take power from him or her. Well... But just to comment on that, we did see a kind of mild version of that, uh, again, getting back to the 2016 election, where Bernie Sanders, uh, an avowed socialist, uh, was running against uh, Hillary Clinton um, for the nomination of the Democratic Party, and, uh, and some say was very close to winning, but, but through various political machinations, um, you know, instated by uh, the Democratic machine who was behind Hillary, he was disenfranchised and knocked out. And uh, what, what makes matters worse was he knew he was uh, manipulated out of the nomination. He probably could have even beaten Trump, some people say. But, um, but because of her power, because of her ruthlessness, uh, because of, of things he had probably been, been told um, you know, behind the scenes, uh, he offered absolutely little to none little to no uh, resistance um, or response or, or retaliation um, to, to what was his, uh, his ouster. 
Um, so, so yeah, I think that uh, that one example kind of points to exactly what you were just saying, Harrison, in in the form of um, you know if, if if he had succeeded, he would be dead. Um, he he could never have um, he he could never have uh, gone um, past Hillary for all of her ruthlessness and uh, and pathology. I don't I don't know if I'm gonna. <laughs> I don't know if I want to go there. No. <laughs> well, I just wanted to touch on what you were discussing before about the purge of you know norm, relatively normal people from the party itself. And I don't know if maybe my memory is just maybe I just need to have my memory jogged, but I don't think that we've seen an actual purge from like the you know the Democratic no. Party itself. But we have seen a voluntary you know mass exodus. Mm-hmm. From the Democratic Party, which I don't know if that functions in the same way in ponderology or if it's basically the same way or a different way to, that accomplishes the same goal of removing normal people from the group. But Lobachevsky said that uh, when that happens, that he refers to it as the stormy period mm-hmm. of the group's ponderization, that it doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily going into that deep pathocracy mode yet. But he says that uh, this is the stormy period of a group's polarization, followed by a certain stabilization in terms of contents, structure, and customs. And so I'm not sure if I'm just premature in saying that, you know, people, that this kind of mass exodus was kind of part of the stormy period, but it obviously has been a very chaotic period for the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, with professors being, you know, harassed and all that, there's definitely been a lot of pressure on people to leave the group um, if they had any sense of sanity left. And I'm when you look at the look at it now with uh, the Ocasio-Cortez getting in there and launching her Green New Deal, that program, which is basically just like com- the communist wet dream um, fantasy. It's uh, it seems like there has been kind of this this new leadership, this evolution of the or de-evolution rather of the group, and a new kind of a new uh, leadership that isn't necessarily um, you know I don't know much about about her. Obviously, she's crazy, but I'm not saying that you know she's the 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 pathocratic leader or anything. But there's obviously a new uh, level of leadership that is kind of there seems like to to be a stabilizing factor uh, going on right now that it's they're kind of rallying the the wagons around this new um, or rather old uh, communist ideal and that's basically where the democratic party is uh, kind of uh, going in what do you think i i don't know actually because i think that like when we're looking at like ponderology too like he's He's taking basically taking this theoretical approach. He's he's showing like the categories in which to think about these things. But when it comes to actually like looking at real life examples, sometimes it can be hard because we don't have a lot, we don't have all the data, right? So to what degree is, for instance, either party like Democrat or Republican actually um, like truly psychopathological? It's hard to tell. Um, I tend to think that for the most part, these are just. Like most of the members of these groups, like congressmen and senators, are relatively ordinary people. And by ordinary, I mean average, which means you know, pretty stupid, um, you know, not very, not very, um, you know, intelligent or not not with the highest morals. Um, you know, these are people who who are just regular people who, when put into positions like this, act what you know, when exposed to the public, act in really um, what seem to be extremely selfish and um, um, just, you know, naughty ways. And 
So when you look at it from that perspective, I tend to see a bunch of like flawed people just acting selfishly um, with perhaps some like some degree definitely of like psychopathology and kind of like evilness in there because you can you can never escape that in every group in every political system you're always going to have some degree of psychopathology that's just a part of ordinary society um so what lobachevsky seems to be talking about is this it's like a a special a special situation where things are exaggerated to to uh to a degree that that takes it out of the realm of like a normal level of of pathology and um and well takes it to a new level so um so and I and I don't know, right? I don't I don't have um the ability to like psychoanalyze or you know diagnose all of these all of these individuals. So but what I so so when you have examples like uh, of things that that Lobachevsky talks about, I think you'll always be able to see um like analogies to to any movement and t- to what degree those are exactly what Ponerology what Lobachevsky is talking about, it's hard to know. Like so in any group for instance, you're always going to get um, you know, people that leave for whatever reason, they say, oh, well, you know, um, you know, I just can't get behind this anymore. Um, are they leaving just because um, some of the, like, policies and ideals and values have changed? Um, like, to what degree is that because of, like, uh, like truly a pathological element entering? Um, I think there's always going to be, like, a similar dynamic going on, but it's always hard for me to, to like, nail down, you know, what exactly is happening. It's, it's easier in retrospect, Right, it's easier in retrospect to see. Okay, so this is what happened at this point, right? So that's so what we saw really was the, what this you know what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So like you talked about this this process of people like kind of like leaving the left, right, and like leaving the Democratic Party because they see the direction it's going. Well, that is one thing that Lobachevsky talks about when a group's like ideology gets uh, gets kind of subverted or, or perverted, um, and then but but then like look at like groups like Antifa, for example. Like I wouldn't consider them democratic groups, um, at least you know not officially. Like it's not like the it's not like the all of the if you take all of the democratic like congressmen and senators and you know et cetera from from like you know local to federal levels that you're that you're gonna that they're all like secretly like antifa believers or anything like that. Um, they might see antifa as a, a useful like radical group for certain purposes, but um, but they're not hardcore believers. On the other hand, you have a group of hardcore believers <clears throat> like the guys on the street. And then you've even got like uh, within the Democratic Party, you have like the radical element of the Democratic Party who are true believers in um, um, you know certain of these more radical uh, ideas. I-, I would say that maybe well, my guess would be that those are like the the groups. Those are the what what Lobachevsky is talking about. These like unions. It's like a union within a larger party, and that the the danger would be that that union of of radicals then takes over and then the ponderogenic process would happen within that group because you have these groups with an identifiable ideology because like democrats and republicans they don't have an ideology um like not not in the way that lobachevsky is talking about it um like but antifa has an ideology and like the, all the alt-right guys like they have an ideology like they've got this this kind of like simplistic looking w- way of looking at the world that answers all the questions and says these are all the things wrong and these are all the ways to fix them and it all fits together and it's like here's my thing right this is my this is my worldview it's like democrats and republicans being like from my perspective again like relatively normal people that that like like and relatively rep- rep- normally reprehensible people 
they're they're political opportunists. It's like, okay, well, you know, we'll we'll just go with whatever the you know public opinion says. We'll go in this direction. We don't actually really believe it, but we like staying in power. So this is like our party. This is our party line, and we're going to follow it. But there's no real like overarching ideology for the most part. I don't think. And you know, someone can convince convince me I'm wrong. But well, I think that that's what is interesting about. Um, like this new, especially Ocasio-Cortez, in my opinion, what's interesting about her is that she comes to the, she brings the ideology to the table. If you've read mm-hmm. the the Green New Deal, she knows everything that's wrong about the U.S. economy, everything, how to fix everything, how to mm-hmm. fix cow farts and, and how to, you know, save the world from, you know, global warming and everything. So it seems to me, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't been re- written down into the you know the 21st century communist manifesto, but the ideas are all floating out there. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people that would still identify with the left, um, they have that ideology. They that's you know it's, it might not be written down. It's probably on Democracy Now on some episode or something. Mm-hmm. But it's it's out there. It's floating around, and maybe they're it's waiting for somebody yeah. for like a schizoid to bring it all together. And actually, and to make it something that's like, here, I've got it in my back pocket. This mm-hmm. is what we need to do, you know. But I still think, you know, there, it's really, it's inspired by communism. Obviously, mm-hmm. probably nobody in the party has read it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do get the impression that they have an ideology. But like, um, but like you said, it's, it's not clear exactly what is going on on the macro-social scale right now. Mm-hmm. I don't, because it seems to me like the... The polarization process is a, at this point a macrosocial phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it's a prime. It seems like it's largely on the left, you know, through the hysteria and and everything. But I, uh, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure what stage it's, it's at. If you could look in the book and see, like you said, he wrote it theoretically, and then he also ma- mentions, you know, he he makes the caveat that there's it's going to be different, you know, with different technology, different history, mm-hmm. and all the different countries mm-hmm. that it's going to take place differently. But I I would still maintain that yeah, we're seeing something yeah. uh, like a very schizoidish, ideological, like a group, um, a polarized union of uh, you know, Cor- Corey, I. I I'm leaning towards what you're saying. Um, several of us watched the State of the Union address uh, several nights ago um, with Trump. And um, AOC Cortez was uh, in the audience wearing her white suit in solidarity with uh, you know women's causes uh, among a couple of dozen other women who were also wearing white with Nancy Pelosi behind Donald Trump also wearing white and kind of acting as the conductor. Okay, you can stand now. Okay, you can, you know, don't, don't, don't respond to that one. Okay, that's a, that's a good one to, uh, to respond to. And my impression is that, um, that uh, Cortez is, is being put front and center by the media. She's being lavished all this attention uh, with her policies She's, she's kind of uh, standing for the new democratic ideology um, in reaction to uh, what they perceive to be you know, Trumpism or, or Republicanism or conservatism or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so there's this kind of uh, uh, loose constellation of, of, of ideas and policies that can only be solved, uh, as you were saying earlier, in, in this and this extreme manner, completely unrealistic. Um, and in the background, you have these, these power players like Kamala Harris, you know, former prosecutor, who is as um, 
reminds me a little bit of of Hillary Clinton in in her ambition and sophistication and and pure like you know drive for power and will for power, uh, who has already begun to appropriate uh, what, some of what Cortez uh, has been saying with her green policy, who's front and center, and saying, well, well, these are the things that I would run on run on as as president of the United States. So you already have this trial balloon of, of Harris as the president or, or the, the new leader of the Democratic Party who is, who is taking on these ideology, these ideological policies as her own enough to, you know, enough to give the impression that there's some substance behind her. And it, it just seems to me that just like Hillary Clinton, you know, progressivism, liberalism was just a brand was just a you know this uh, this thing that that could be used to uh, further her her own rise to power and money and influence uh, and that's it. Um, so so I guess what I'm saying is that I, I you know you can sort of see an embryonic form some of the d- these dynamics at play. Uh, I could be wrong. I, you know I could be uh, projecting some of these dynamics onto um, on, onto these figures. But uh, but an argument could be made for how it's it's being played out in these terms. I think I was thinking along the same lines as uh, you and uh, Corey Elon, in that <clears throat> just reading some of the things that uh, Acacia Cor- <clears throat> Cortez has done and said, and then the reaction from the Democratic establishment uh, that they have had to her. I mean, I agree with you, Corey. It's the ideology isn't quite fully formed yet, but there's this inkling there, and the way that she's interacting with you know the other party members, um, it's it's there. You can see a shuffling going on, a shuffling and vying for power, and and I don't see AOC as a as a Hillary Clinton. She she strikes me as more of a, a true believer, mm-hmm. and so I don't see her being you know you know, the new Hitler. I see her as being, you know, that which uh, allows the new Hitler to mm-hmm. yeah, to come in. Well, yeah. yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? I mean, just that how it all came out, you know, with her basically just putting this, this radical, radical communist manifesto and having, you know, 60 whatever Democrats sign on to it. I mean, it's not a bill it's, or anything like that, but it's, um, you know, even if it's just a flash in the pan, it's like, wow, I can't believe that just boggles my mind that you could really think that any of this is a good idea and let alone to get elected and then to be lavished with praise for your you know your heroic sensibilities how you're going to save the planet from you know global warming by removing all cars from the country in 10 years and airplanes too why not start you know don't stop at cars you got to and then to you know rebuild every building redo every single building in the country um, you know, if, if anybody hasn't seen her, the Green New Deal, the the memo put out, um, it's it's out there and it's definitely worth a read. It's only four pages, but it's just bullet points on everything that they they want to do. Basically, just the wish list of how they would run the country, and you get an idea for this this mind. And you know, the I guess they're it, you can't you can't say that it's not you know polarized <laughs> that mm-hmm. in some way or another. Well, maybe to. Um, like to get some pr- perspective, like Ilan, you brought up the the guy at the beginning and Antifa. 
I want to read some stuff, some kind of bullet points from uh, Gordon Hahn's book, Ukraine Over the Edge. He's got this section on the right sector. So the right sector um, was like a new group that developed on the Maidan in like uh, 2014. And, you know, um, basically it was a, a collection, um, like an amalgamation of previous kind of like far-right neo-Nazi, you know, neo-fascist groups in Ukraine. So he gives basically um, a rundown of their leaders, their kind of prominent members, their ideology. So I just want to read some points um, that I think are are kind of relevant. So first of all, uh, Right Sector was founded by Dmitry Yarosh um, on the ideological and per- personnel foundation um, of the group Stepan Bandera's Trident, or simply Trident. So Bandera was the kind of like um, Western Ukrainian nationalist uh, during World War II who collaborated with the Nazis at one point and then, you know, when he had a falling out with the Nazis, but basically, you know, was a neo-fascist, did, w- did work with the Nazis when it suited his interests. Um, and uh, and that he is kind of like the hero of the, the far right on in Ukraine. So um, that's, th- that's what it was founded on. The source of right sector's philosophy, ideology, and propaganda are those of integral nationalism, proselytized by Bandera, Donstov, and other interwar and post-war Ukrainian ultra-nationalist luminaries. Its programmatic key words are the Ukrainian nation, the Ukrainian national idea, nation-centric, and nationocracy. The Ukrainian, tr- the, the Ukrainian nationality and state, depicted as being under constant threat from alien forces, ethnic, foreign, religious, and cultural, are placed above all else. The main slogan of right sector's modified and softened electoral program is God, Ukraine, Freedom. The individual is subsumed to God and the homeland, since, according to the right sector, the purpose of human existence is to be closer to God, and the way to God is through the homeland. Under the main slogan Ukraine, the program emphasizes that the Almighty created us, the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian nation, and let his will be hallowed forever. Only in their own national state can Ukrainians, Ukrainian Christians, and Ukraine survive. So Ukraine for us, above all, by defending Ukraine and seeking to create a Ukrainian national state, we will we not only defend our national rights, but above all, the will of God. And so, God is with us. End of the quote. Freedom is defined not in terms of individual freedom and rights, but rather as the Ukrainian nation's freedom protected by its own state. Quote, Stateless and oppressed people cannot act according to the laws of God, nor its own. It is doomed to live as those who oppress it would dictate. And so the struggle for human freedom, the nation, and Ukraine is our Christian and national responsibility. Our duty is the cultivation and propagation of the Ukrainian national idea, the idea of self-assertion of the state of the Ukrainian, act, the Ukrainian nation, and the Ukrainian national state's creation as an effective system of Ukrainian democracy. Um, but right, uh, right sector in some of their propaganda, they describe like the, the educational system and they say that it should create, quote, nationally conscious, active, selfless, and, sac- and sacrificial citizens for the Ukrainian national state. Um, they, the, the program, this educational program, claims that Ukraine is undergoing a genocide, having fallen victim to carefully cultivated and propagated perversion, drug addiction, alcoholism, fornication, homosexuality, violence, spirituality, denationalization, political apathy, and more. Um, the, like many nationalist groups, right sectors is a, a, a fetishistic, is fetishistic about the village as the purified carrier of the nation. Um, in foreign policy, um, they propose a non-aligned course, um, partnership with NATO, the, e- the EU, and the CIS, and other existing international organizations is regarded as dangerous and destructive. Um, 
let's see. They everything everything that goes behind beyond the frame of the nation is either hypocrisy or sterile sentimental fiction. They have a sacred mission. Um, the the course this educational course again instructs members that the only way to build the nation and the state is by way of a national revolution made by the Ukrainian people and led by the national revolutionary order. The 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 right sector views the Maidan regime, Ukraine's constitution and the law as expendable. The higher value is the nation, which supersedes the rule of law, until such a time as the right sector is writing the laws. The Course notes, the, con- the, the Constitution is a law and no more, the basic law, but only a law. Establishing the national idea should be a primary in the minds of the people, not only in the Constitution. People can, can exist without a con- Constitution, but they are doomed without a national idea, which turns it into a nation. The national idea is above the law. Um, they reject the idea of a bloodless revolution. Um, this guy, so Yarosh's deputy, Andrei Stempitsky, um, he was, he would head the right sector's military wing after, uh, the ouster of Yanukovych. He warned, quote, undoubtedly completely bloodless revolution is impossible. After the revolution, the intensification of hostilities is quite expected. And the one who says, I do not want blood has yet to say, I do not want the return of the occupied territories, referring to Crimea and Donbass. And I do not want Ukraine's liberation from the power of Moscow, freedom and greatness of a nation of something for which you pay, uh, for, for which you pay a high, freedom and greatness of a nation is something for which you pay a high price. And they have this kind of martyrdom ideology too. Thus, like other extremist ideologies, the right sector member is expected to sacrifice his life for the cause. Quote, to ensure the existence of future generations of our nation, the Ukrainian nationalist revolutionary is willing to even give in, give his life. Death in the eternal uh, death in the struggle for freedom, power and glory of Ukraine, is eternal life in the me- memory of the people, is the crown of eternal glory in the nation, is eternal paradise with the Lord. Each death is new proof of the holiness and justice of our ideas, its vitality and victory. In some sections of the right sector short course, the cult of self- self-sacrifice attains a level equal to that of the jihadists' cult of death and martyrdom. Quote, this Cossack Baida, three days hanging on the hook, but, d- but did not betray his people. The woman, Olga Basarab, bloodily perished from beatings and torture without betraying the slightest confidence. Their names have become immortal. You act in this way, and when you find yourself in the most critical, hopeless situation, quietly and calmly, as they killed themselves, shoot yourself in the forehead or explode a grenade, proof of your ideology, self-holiness, courage, and endurance. They have this idea of their superhuman heroism and the the idea of their, their martyrs as the great mighty ones. And the... The, the calls for, for <laughs> oh, I won't even read that. It's funny. Okay. Yeah. Revenge. Um, society infiltrating state or state organs. Um, closet anti-Semitism. They say they're not anti-Semitism, but they, uh, but they actually are and kind of admit it when they're, when they're not. Like, this, this one was funny. So this one guy, um, uh, which guy was this? Well, Yarosh. Yeah. He, he said that, you know, they're not, they're not anti-Semitic. Um, but they refer to this cosmopolitanism. They're anti-cosmopolitan um, and anti-cosmopolitan business. So upon close qu- questioning, its members tend to reveal an anti-Jewish bias. For example, when asked in a March 2014 interview with a Western journalist whether right sector was anti-Semitic, a top right sector leader, Igor Mazur, said that this was impossible since his, God's, since his son's godfather was half Jewish. However, he also stated that all of Ukraine's hated oligarchs are Jewish, and he does not like them because they care only for their transnational business empires, for making money. They really don't care for Ukraine. 
When asked if all Ukrainian oligarchs are Jewish, he simply shrugged. And when asked if the unpopular Yulia Tymoshenko was Jewish, Jewish, he replied, we don't know for sure. We think she has some Jewish blood in her. Um, uh, they, they have like contacts with, um, with the Caucasus Emirate, the, the ISIS-aligned jihadist, jihadists in uh, Chechnya. Um, they've fought with them. They've invited them over. Um, they've given awards to each other. Um, some of the guys actually fought against the Russians in Chechnya uh, during the war in the late 90s. Um, so uh, another thing, all, na- all actions that fail to comply with obligations to the nation and the state will entail the restriction of civil rights or deprivation of citizenship. The ultimate goal of Ukrainian foreign policy is world domination. That's a direct quote from right sector, um, you know, propaganda literature, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's see if maybe there's another good one. Um, or is that enough? Yeah, that might be enough. Basically, this is a, this is what Lobachevsky's talking about when he talks about a group with an ideology. Like these guys, like when you read further, like when you get into the stuff that they're all about, they have reasons for believing all of this. They have historical grievances. They've got current, um, like economic woes and poverty. And this is the ideology that unifies them together, that will allow them to right the wrong that the Russians did to them and that the oligarchs are doing to them now. They see themselves as the glorious heroes, the, the righteous ones that can do no wrong, that are morally, morally righteous and justified in everything that they do, that will excuse any kind of pathology within their group because they are moving towards this goal of the, of the Ukrainian National Revolution, and they will do anything that they, that they want to get there. Now, as, as crazy as all that that, you, that I just read was, now... That is the normal version of, of the ideology. What Lobachevsky is saying is that behind that is the psychopathic ideology. Behind that, as crazy and pathological as that ideology is, it's behind that that you have the psychopaths steering a movement like this to gain power, who will then throw these guys to the wolves and you know, kill them, assassinate them, assassinate them on, like, you know, in, in alleys, in, in, uh, you know, in, in shadowy alleys behind you know, tall buildings at night. These guys will be shanked in the streets because they are the true believers. But this is what the true believer looks like. These are the guys actually, that actually believe these things and want the Ukrainian you know, national project to come to fruition and are willing to you know, assassinate and, and snipe people on the streets in order to, to, to have this revolution, this violent overthrow of the government. Um, and they, they have members in the government right now. Now, still, they, have, they actually didn't manage to totally take over the government because they didn't get full control. But... Um, but like, imagine Yarosh as, as the leader of Ukraine. As bad as Poroshenko is, he'd be worse. And as bad as Yarosh would be, it would it would morph into something even worse than the right sector. So this is why I don't think that like um, you know like the Democratic Party, for instance, is this like ponderogenic union. You're going to have path, uh, you're going to have pathology in it. No, you know for sure, no matter what. You're going to have opportunist politicians. You're going to have like greedy sons of bitches that join any political party and, and use it for their own purposes. But right, but we don't have yet this ideology. Like I, I agree with you guys. We have the seeds of these ideologies right now, primarily on the left. You also have them on the right, but on the right, they're so insignificant. Like you do have alt-right people that are basically like right sector. Um, they're the, the right sector equivalent in Western nations, in the United States, in Europe, who have these like crazy nationalistic ideas. No one really knows about them. No one really listens to them. Um, they don't have a lot of pull. Where you do see the the mass pull is to the leftist versions of this, like Antifa, and potentially like that's why I say that uh, like a group within the Democratic Party could stage this kind of silent coup or um, 
um, you know, gain gain more political traction in a way, that group would then become crazier to the extent where, you know, to the point where it, it, will, it would need a kind of like overarching ideology that like the kind of Antifa people and, you know, maybe even like some AOC supporters would get. She might even be able to be a figurehead, be a, be a spellbinder for, a, for an ideology, like a, a, an identifiable ideology. And then things would get crazier after that. Right, because what we're talking about, we're still talking about the first stage, really, of the of the macrosocial phenomena, you know, where it's where it's building, and there's that gradual adaptation of the of you know an ideology or of of a moral system or into something that can be weaponized and used to to gain power. And you see, you know, I mean, just looking through history, when we've discussed about it in previous shows, that you see, uh, you know, pretty crazy people trying to do these kinds of things, especially in universities, trying, you know, coming up with this intersectional theories and, you know, all of this different ways, you know, feminist theories where I remember one quote from a feminist author that they're not making, you know, uh, empirical theories, but they're creating strategic theories. Mm-hmm. That was her exact, or not exact quote, but that was mm-hmm. the, the, the spirit of the quote. So, yeah, the, uh, you know, Lobachevsky says that the ideology of the secondarily ponergenic association is formed by that gradual ad- adaptation. And one of the big problems is, is that this, um, that this hysteria that, you know, from all this pressure from these, from these lunatics is what creates the conditions for that second phase of the macrosocial phenomenon where that, you know, society descends into absolute lunacy, and there's you know revolution and all of that stuff, and and um, you know, not saying that that's going to happen, but just saying that you know that kind of hysteria that of these people applying all of this pressure onto you know creating these grand dreams makes it so you can't solve normal everyday problems anymore. You know, no, you nobody can agree on anything because everyone, you know, the like you had said earlier in another show, Harrison. Nobody even in America, at least, thinks they even belong in this or the same country anymore. It's you know, I'm in San Francisco. You don't, you're not in my country. You know, or I'm in the rural Midwest. You, you disgusting, you know, uh, leftists and your perverted, you know, children's sex ed courses, and you're trying to bring Satanists into the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, it just creates this rift that just begs for, you know, the bloody kind of um, uh, showdowns, you know? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that was my, my point. Well, on, on that point, uh, Trump, in, in one of his most insightful tweets, I thought, because uh, his tweets are always fun to read, um, had actually addressed Antifa uh, on, on this matter and said, you know, if you think you're armed and violent, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, just watch out because it, there are others who are armed and violent as well. And, and he is uh, correct in giving them this warning. Uh, if, if you're going to continue to radicalize yourself and, um, and behave in the way that you, that you are, uh, you can fully expect at some point down the road uh, the right to have reached their limit and, and will respond in kind. Um, so it may never be that we'll, we'll have a, a full-fledged um, uh, union or, or um, larger association of, of either uh, type necessarily that, it'll, that will look exactly the way that Lobachevsky is describing. Um, but uh, on, a, on a smaller level, we could see some very horrible skirmishes among the, uh, the uh, radicalized left and a conservative uh, base in the U.S. That, um, that's just had enough. And, and, and that is quite willing to, uh, 
to strike back at the leftist institutions, at um, at universities, uh, at these groups that have been so vociferous and so um, so increasingly violent in in trying to achieve the aims that they're that they've been uh, going for. Yeah, and the you know the rest of the society suffers the consequences of the you know of increasing censorship on what you can say on people being triggered you know left or right um you know it it increasingly becomes a you know you're you're walking you're trying to step around landmines just in your everyday life because everyone becomes so uh not intolerant but you know triggered and willing to resort to that trigger happy kind of uh, mentality in order to you know defend their honor, their morality, the the right way to, of doing things, and and uh, yeah, it just makes life that much more miserable. Wake mm-hmm. up every day in this nightmare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at the news, and you're like, good heavens, it's only got worse. Well, we're gonna wrap up in a few minutes. I just wanted to say a couple things on ideology. First of all, um, you know, I think that to kind of backtrack a bit on my previous point, I think that right sector's ideology is pretty radical, like to start out with, um, and that it is possible for polarization to occur in a less radical ideology. Um, like for example, you know, this, it's not the, you know, it's not the greatest time to bring this one up, but you can, you can imagine that, uh, like Venezuela, for instance, that like Chavismo could be like that, that would be the direction, like a, a light version where you have like, uh, uh, like these revolutionary revolutionary ideals, like socialist ideals that are held by a large per- percentage of the population, and that seem good to 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 like leftists everywhere, um, that that could then be perverted to to a system where that ideology is then used for the same like you know pathocratic purposes that uh, that you saw like in the Soviet Union. That would be what a lot of people on the right are afraid of, right? And that, that, that they see Venezuela and they see it as the worst dict- dictatorship possible, you know, et cetera. Well, I don't think it's there yet. Um, but the fear would be that following these ponderogenic processes, that's the direction it would go in. Um, and so you could see a, a similar thing, let's say, in American politics with uh, Democrats and the Republicans. Again, I think it's harder because they don't. The Democrats and Republicans don't have like um, a set ideology, like like revolutionary movements usually do, like right sector, like like the like ISIS and Al Qaeda, like um, you know socialist movements, uh, communist movements. You know, in, in, all over the place, and for the past hundred and whatever years, but the you can see it in the sense that, um, um, and you, well, you can see like aspects of it. Like you could see like George Bush's kind of like war on terror kind of thing being used as a pretext for um, like going after like the American citizenry, for example. For example, like so, if you have the 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 pretext of fighting terrorism, then the 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 perversion of that would be targeting like totally innocent Americans, uh, framing them for being members of ISIS just to arrest, arrest them and, you know, uh, perhaps execute them for ulterior motives for something other than, you know, being, uh, being terrorists. And same thing with, with, uh, the, with the Democrats, you could have a movement that takes the existing like ideology for whatever it's, it's worth of, of the, um, of the democratic movement and, or party and then use that for ulterior motives. So, so like, there's a way of, for instance, weaponizing the whole Me Too thing. That would be like weaponizing the Me Too thing would would be the way like uh, an ideological movement would would weaponize just one of their ideals, one of their values, for instance. So you would get the the true believers in, of course, just like among normal people, that sexual harassment and abuse and rape is wrong. And then you would get the psychopaths that are using that for 
for political purposes, for the purposes of attaining power, and that means that innocent people will get caught up in, uh, you know, in the crosshairs, uh, and that's when you get like like in the Soviet Union, so the show trials and um, you know fake investigations and fake evidence and people who are just framed uh, and 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 then punished even for trivial crimes. So you know you say something bad about Stalin, you might get sent to the gulag. You say something that might be um, you know, politically incorrect, you might be severely punished for it. Not just character assassination, not just losing your job, but actually, you know, thrown in prison for it. That's like, that's the direction that it could conceivably go in. Um, so, um, like, I, I'll, I still think that the, that the the ideology has some way to go before it can be a vehicle for that purpose. But the, all the seeds are there, especially when you look down from the you know you you take your eyes off of the democratic party in power and you look at the at the like the the actual ideologues in the universities and on the streets you take that ideo- ideology and like because it's it's really kind of solidified and crystallized on that level um and and you take that and you put them in power then you could easily see something like that happening well i just wanted to say just one thought that i have about ideologies and kind of like a, a supply and demand thought um is that like ideologies to me, and you know, just going off of what uh, you know, Jordan Peterson wrote in the Maps of Meaning, as you think of uh, having this big ideology is supposed to orient you in time and space, and the the more disoriented you are, the more you need this ideology, and it seems to me like you know, the more chaos that is pumped into the system, the more that you get all of this conflict and everything, the more people are going to want a are going to demand in some way uh, some form of uh, an ideology that they can um, orient them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can make sense of of why everything is going wrong. You know, if you're looking at just you know crazy weather, you're looking at the crazy uh, just the turbulence in politics, just the craziness that the left brings upon itself and upon all of us. And you know, day after day. It seems to me that that is like a self-reinforcing cycle. That the more craziness they bring, the more there's a pressure to create some sort of an ideology. And I think you see a lot of it, um, you know, on Amazon on like the bestseller list. There's always new books coming out explaining for you know whether you're on the left or you're on the right, you know what's going on, what your mentality should be. And and it seems to me like somewhere in there. Um, you know, there's somebody working, cooking up something that, all right, here it is, you know, this is how it should be. And one reason that I think about, uh, that made me think about that is I was just reading about Karl Marx and the time period during which he was, uh, uh, getting ready to write the communist manifesto. And it was only five years before he wrote it, that he was an, a staunch anti-communist, <laughs> You know, he hate, he was like, this is all ridiculous. It's all stupid. But then just five years later, boom, here's the Communist Manifesto. So, I mean, in just that short amount of time, you've got, um, you've, you can pump out an ideology. You know, you mm-hmm. can pump out. You, it can come out, and then boom, you've got it. Mm-hmm. Um, just one final just little summary on, on ideologies is that, like, what Lobachevsky writes is that the purpose of the ideology is to justify and motivate the the association's activities their actions so you need the like you need the ideology for motivation purposes like you need a goal you need an orientation like you're saying Corey, and then you need it for justification oh well the reason i did this the reason i'm justified in doing this is because of this you know motivation 
that's why like so so in order to do anything you need the ideology as that kind of buffer that kind of well that motivation and that justification so like to use some of the examples we've been using like for the right sector they they are motivated by their nationalistic idea and they use that like um because that is the holiest thing that they can do that that is god's will that well just like isis because of that like justification they well because of that reason they are justified in doing whatever it is whatever it takes to get that so th- that form of of rationalization and like narrative building and justification for for what can be reprehensible actions is then what uh, is is then like the opening f- uh which essentially psychopaths use in in order to do what they want because now they can do anything and all they have to do is say, oh, I was doing it for the cause. I was doing it for the ideology. I was motivated by the ideology, and I'm justified by the ideology. And, so, and, and the people that believe, the ide- believe in the ideology can say, well, okay, because I believe in the ideology, and because that person must have been guilty, for instance, then, um, then I can get behind the fact that they were arrested and maybe executed. Um, and, and that will turn a lot of people off. And so people will leave the group, and then the the the, the pathology the pathology in the group will be concentrated. It'll be even higher, until you know it becomes so pathological that it is literally a group like a, an oligarchy, a small group of pathological individuals that are at, at odds with the entire population, and the entire population turns against this group, and and then you get another ideology to take out the bad guys, and you know start it all over again. Well, uh, I just wanted to quickly comment on that, and then, and then I think we'll bring this show to a close. Um, there are, in fact, show trials going on right now in the United States. Uh, there is, in fact, a ideology behind it that I think is lost on uh, a large segment of the population, but that is, uh, that is being used by um, many of the progressives and people who hate on Trump, quite simply because of what they perceive him to be, and that is the ideology of of uh, hate Russia because it's evil and is trying to dominate the world. Um, when in fact it's the U.S., if you dig deep enough, if you read Sod on a regular basis, uh, by now hopefully you've come to understand that at the, at the very core of what some would call the deep state or the military-industrial complex or the conglomeration of uh, intelligence agencies and, um, and organizations that thrive on war and conflict and securing resources, there is a, a drive, a pathological drive, a, a psychopathic drive to go after Russia. And, uh, and it's not limited in, in its scope uh, at all. Um, so th- this is largely behind what we're seeing uh, with the Mueller investigation regarding Trump. Um, for, for Trump's mere suggestion that he should try to work with Russia, um, which is, I think, what what motivates every single bit of uh, vitriol and and anger towards anyone who shows any amount of reasonableness towards working with Russia. So I don't know if you'd call it an ideology exactly. No. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a uh, it, it it's certainly a kind of. Um, a worldview. Well, I think maybe yeah, behind or, it, I think behind purpose. it, there there is definitely a, an ideology that's stretched back for you know decades, centuries, right? Uh, America and that elite, upper crust, British, Western establishment mentality, and it has to. I mean, maybe it isn't a specific ideology, it's not a world, in what we're talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not like what we're talking about, like right sector type ideology, communist manifesto, but definitely a worldview, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, just thought I'd get that in. And uh, we appreciate you listening, folks. Um, thank you. Thank you guys for uh, a really wonderful conversation today. Uh, I appreciate it. And, um, and we hope you tune in again next week. Uh, you can look forward to listening to Newsreel with Joe and Neil this coming Monday and the Health and Wellness Show next Wednesday. And until then, be well, be your own ponderologist, read ponderology if you've never read it before. It's, uh, it's dense, but it's, it's worth the read. And um, we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye, everybody.